This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Our lessons from Tom Vanderbilt's book, You May Also Like, uh, it brought up an, an interesting, um, I think, problem a lot of us have when we are dealing with um, with likes or dislikes. One of my beliefs is just because you have a preference, right, doesn't mean that it, it has to be that way. And I learned this with my kids, um, that they can have a preference for what they want, but it doesn't mean we always choose that preference. Everyone can have likes or dislikes, and when it comes down to it, we, we need to figure out how to maybe try new things. Um, maybe that won't work for us today. My wife and I have learned a crazy little secret with our own kids that sometimes it's better to not tell them what we're doing. Because the minute we make an announcement about what we're doing, everyone's going to have an opinion. And with six kids and one of them married with a husband and a grandchild, we don't have time, I guess, to make it perfect for everyone. So we always try to just instill the idea that let's just try it, right? We can try it. If we don't like it, we don't have to like it. If you push too hard on people to try stuff, a lot of times you'll just create an immediate rebellion. If you if you don't push hard on people to try stuff, then they're never going to learn what else is out there in the world. So there's a fine balance, isn't there? And any parent knows there's a fine balance to getting their child to do something, to try something, but also do it in a way that we don't want to destroy the game. It's the balance of, uh, you know, the goose and the golden egg, Aesop's fable, that you want to keep getting results in life, but you've got to do it without destroying your ability to get results tomorrow. Any parent can get something to happen today. I can get my kids to eat their vegetables. But if I get it, get them to eat their vegetables in a way that uh, actually hinders my ability to do it next time, then I'm becoming less and less effective. Our goal is to be able to be effective long term to be able to get results today and be able to uh, get them again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And uh, Tom's work and uh, the example he was giving about, uh, you know, his getting his father to try a new drink or a new beer or a beverage, it's uh, it's probably very appropriate for all of us to learn. If we want to get people to try new things, then you probably need to model it that, hey, this this does this does well for for you they they can see that it it offers you an opportunity and maybe start where the people are it doesn't mean that they even want to change their beverage choice but you can at least offer it and if you're offering just a taste of something else you might want to take it folks um, i mean i know we all kind of fall in into our entrenched stubbornness at times but if somebody offers you a chance to try something different, try it. And know that there's nothing lost here. Just try stuff. Try it. We don't need to revert back to the, you know, the five-year-old that's not going to open his mouth to try anything new. When you're, you know, when you're 45, you can just choose to 
try some new things. And amazingly, my trying and, and tasting of sushi 10 years ago changed my life. Thank you. Thank you. Changed my life, folks. But for 35 years, I had said, nah, I don't eat raw fish. That's just horrible. It's choice, folks. Don't force choice. Choice is inevitable. Just create a great space where it's worth trying. And it's easy to try. And it's easy to fail as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Doing a little coach's corner for you here. Now, the breakup between Great Britain and the EU, it's it's like a... It's like a, it's a bunch of friends that you lined up years ago, and now they just don't get along. They just don't get along. So what are you supposed to do? And who do you go with, right? Do I go with my best friend, Great Britain? But I, I've really come to love and appreciate the other partners. Mm, I don't know. I don't know what you do. Well, the EU gives you financial benefits. So is your friend more important than financial benefits? No, because I feel like I can use both of them equally. How many times on the show have we talked about collaboration and the need to work together? The need to, I mean, we live in a global economy. We live in a global marketplace. And now Great Britain's going to kind of go it alone. But they still need markets, right? They still need places to put their their goods they still need trade and i guess they're assuming or believing that they'll just be able to pick that up so it, it may not be an all or nothing kind of mentality it it's this is a it's an interesting concern about isolationism in fact it reminds me of um this story that i read oh listen to this poor guy a colombian sailor found alive after two months adrift in the pacific A sailor has been rescued after spending two harrowing months lost at sea, witnessing the deaths of his three shipmates and forced to eat seagulls for survival. 29-year-old Colombian sailor was picked up some 3,500 miles from home, far out in a desolate stretch of the Pacific Ocean. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, he arrived on dry land in Honolulu on Wednesday. Can you imagine finally seeing ground? Landed on in Honolulu, saying the sailor was in good condition and happy to have survived. The sailor told officials his group of four set off from Columbia more than two months ago. When the engine of their 23-foot skiff failed, they found themselves adrift, and they were forced to eat fish and seagulls to stay alive. He told the Coast Guard the bodies of his compatriots were not on board anymore, the tiny vessel, when it was found, but the sole survivor was able to produce their passports. So they had to be let go, probably. He was also found with a soccer ball, wasn't he? No, that's 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 another show. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. this isn't. This is a different. This is a real life story. This is not. Isn't that other one a real life story too? No, really. No, that's a movie. That's a movie. I thought it was a documentary. No, Castaway. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a movie. It it was it didn't happen. But this is the music. I appreciate how you played that music behind this. But this this uh, was a real story of a guy that had to. I mean, I guess eventually these guys died, and then you just throw them into the ocean. That's what you got to do. You can't have them. 
Cam just dead there next to you. Can you imagine? Sometimes that's how I feel. Alone on an island. Or just alone in a skiff. With a dead body next to you? With a dead body named Ben. Sleeping on the board. (sighs) That's what I'm afraid of for the UK. Be careful. Be careful going off on your own. Sometimes you might just be adrift for two months. And have to eat seagulls. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Helping you see the good in the world. The guy survived. That's the good. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. We just learned about our uh, physical health, right? You gotta, you gotta lose the soda. And I'm going to say, <laughs> just for my own sake, you gotta lose the sugary soda, the 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 cancerous uh, acidic soda without sugar. Totally fine. No, it's not. More water, folks. Now, we tell our kids all of these things, and yet, uh, isn't it hard? Um, we, we heard earlier in the show the story about the son who called the police because his dad ran a red light. Mm, thanks, Dad. There's certain things that they see out of you, right? Uh, they see how you handle stuff. They see what you're doing. Your kids are watching you. And they don't really have a shot at a healthy life if you don't provide it. And I'm not here to make you depressed because you're just such a horrible parent. Because you're not. But they're watching. They are watching. And if we want any hope of being able to lead our families, we, we probably need to master ourselves. And find one thing, just one thing. And maybe soda is the way to begin. If you know you're a big soda lover, soda drinker, deal with it. Find a way to break the habit. And I wouldn't personally just go diet. I've been diet and that doesn't help. I find that about three times a year I quit soda for about a month. And then I go out with a bunch of friends and I watch them drink soda. And I'm like, oh, you guys are lucky. Can I just smell your drink? It's, I feel like I'm an alcoholic and I never had alcohol. So uh, how do we break a habit? How do we break it? And But also one of the things I'd think about is instead of building the story and the belief that habits are hard to break, let's find a better reason to have the habit. Why Why would it be valuable for you to get rid of the soda? Well, my kids would be healthier. We would save money. Yeah, what else? We've got to figure out a way deep, deep down to drive this meaning much deeper than having it be about soda. And you don't even – you've got to be careful. You don't want your identity to be, well, I don't drink soda. I've never had sugar on my lips for the last six years. It drives me crazy when we become so adamant about one thing and we've created our entire identity by not doing something. You also need to have your identity being something you do do, something that you are, right? It's, I guess, easier to say what you're not, but sometimes we need to know what you are. So it's not just about a soda war. It's not just about I'm a lazy bum and I can't get off of sugar. You you also have to find what you are. 
And as soon as you can connect to that deeper meaning in your life and the deeper purpose of what you're about, you'll see that it's not about soda. I have a belief that if we could connect to our deepest, most spiritual self, we wouldn't drink soda, right? We also probably wouldn't make fun of people and we wouldn't yell and we wouldn't hold grudges because there's a deeper, better side of all of us. And uh, But our body is constantly battling that. So if we want to fix it, you don't necessarily have to just bare knuckle it and hunker down and get rid of everything in life that tastes good. You might also just want to figure out a deeper purpose for who you are. And again, you don't also have to go sit on a mountain like a monk and meditate. What it might simply mean is I got to just figure out why health is so important to me. And it might simply be because it gives me a body that works, and when my body works, it makes this life a little easier to live. It gives me a chance to live longer so I can learn more. If I can figure out why I'm even on this big ball of mud, this planet, then I want to be here to to learn. I think I'm here to learn. And if I'm slowly burning the candle at both ends of my life, then my learning is going to be short-changed. And short change simply because I like sugar. I again, I don't think I don't think your God is up there sitting like I cannot believe he's drinking another super big gulp. But your conscience might be telling you something, and it might be telling you something because you know something about you. You know that you're not drinking enough, or you're not eating enough vegetables, or you're not being the person you need to be, and you can just, I guess, go medicate it by, you know, escaping and getting away from it. Or you could just dig a little deeper and find some other way to connect to a deeper reason why you want to do, why you want to get healthier. It's, if it's just about getting in the bathing suit, I promise it won't work. You might get in the bathing suit, but, you know, it might break or it might not last very long. There's always the deeper reason. And so get out of your body Get out of your mind that kind of justifies everything we do. And let's get down to our spirit, that uh, deeper inner connected being that you are, and see what it's telling you. It's it's still telling you no matter what, you're loved, you're a great person, you're wonderful, even if you're drinking, you know, cola. And it's also telling you, you can stop. You can moderate it. You could get in charge of it and lead it a little bit more. Everyone's going to have a trial. Everyone's going to have a challenge. Everyone. If your challenge are sugary drinks, okay. But no, that's not the real challenge. The real challenge is becoming the best you you can become. And you're not bad because you do it. You just you need to figure it out. No matter what the addiction or no matter what the uh, the craving is, right? Interesting stuff, folks. That's the Coach's Corner. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, folks, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, uh, you may have heard in the news about the Panama Papers, and it's it really is something that's making big news internationally. Maybe not as 
not as big of news in the United States because I guess the elections are going on, but there's something about shell companies, uh, these off, uh, these international kind of uh, these, I don't know what we're calling them, these offshore firms, law firms that will help organizations, people set up these shell companies, hidden secret offshore companies and accounts. It seems like a great way to avoid taxes and and um, to, I mean, not avoid, I guess that sounds bad, but to legally follow all of the laws to not have to pay taxes. The problem is a lot of these organizations also are doing illegal things and are funneling their illegal monies through some of these offshore accounts. Now, in the news recently, there uh, there's a big, uh, you know, hullabaloo around the Panama Papers. And the Panama Papers was basically a leak of 11.5 million files from a database by the world's fourth largest offshore firm, Mossack Fonseca. And uh, it has now started to... Um, I guess the the information was then leaked to the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And now all of a sudden, a lot of very popular, famous people and leaders are being exposed as having had a lot of money hidden away in some of these accounts and, um, you know, exploiting offshore regimens and laws. So we wanted to bring somebody in that could help us understand what's going on with these. And who better to do it than Dr. Daniel Nielsen? Dr. Nielsen is a professor and associate chair of the political science department here at Brigham Young University. He's also the founder and principal investigator of Aid Data and is here to kind of walk us through this. Dr. Nielsen, thanks for being here. My pleasure. This is a complicated topic. So I hope you can make it easier for us. Teach us, first of all, shell companies. Why do shell companies exist? Are they all – is everybody that has a shell company or a, you know an offshore account, are they all a bunch of scoundrels? Uh, shell companies uh, aren't really what we think about when we think about corporations. They don't have employees. Yeah. They don't have – Benefit plans, right. right? They don't have payrolls. They parking don't have anything passes. like pa- parking yeah. passes. They, they, yeah. they don't. They don't really have locations, uh, even. Uh, shells are super useful in the world, and and I think without them, it's hard to see commerce, modern commerce, continuing. Really, so no. they're really important. No, are they just uh, pass through entities? What are they? They often are. Some, sometimes they're holding companies. Okay. So let's say that, that two companies, one from Canada and one from the U.S., wanted to enter into a partnership. Well, they may not want to cooperate in either Canada or the U.S. because one of the, one or the other of them would then have an advantage right. in the in the political system or in the in the in the legal system. Uh-huh. And so they'll 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 go to British Virgin Islands, which is the most important uh, offshore uh, offshore location. Uh, and and BVI has a really good uh, legal system, uh, and it's a stable country, uh, and they mostly do this. Hmm. You know that that's you know that's they're they're I think ten times more firms than people in the British Virgin Islands, <laughs> right? So so yeah. uh, and so that that gives them a neutral playing field. Yeah, uh, and so they can have a holding company that that manages this joint operation uh, that then is that then is held in a place where they where they have you know reasonable um, laws and and uh, and then kind of an even. You know, an even partnership. So these companies would would then just call a law firm down in the right. in the Virgin Islands. Is that what you call it? British Virgin Br- Islands? British, yeah, yeah BVI. Um, then they would set it up, and the monies would then from this new deal or this new opportunity would then be sent down there. Right, and that seems pretty legit. 
That yeah, seems necessary, right. And, right. and it's protected. And if there's right. an issue, we yeah. go to court down there yeah. and handle it. Yeah, and, and the best example I can think of of the use of shell companies is Walt Disney. So when Walt Disney was buying all the land that is now Disney World in, in, in Orlando, Florida, um, if he had gone to all those landowners and said, hey, I'm Walt Disney, he was pretty famous at the time, yeah. uh, and I want to buy your land, they might have come up with a different price for him. Right. Uh, so instead, he uh, used a bunch of shell companies uh, and like Tomahawk Properties was mm-hmm. one of them. Uh, and then his agents would approach landowners and say, how much do you want for your land? And they, and they got a fair market value there you go. for the land. And, and actually, if you, if you visit Main Street USA in, in Disney World today, you can look up at the second story windows and the names of those shell companies are in those second story windows. Oh, are they yeah, really? really it's, uh, you know, That's great. It's kind of fun. So, That's a cool history. So, um, so, so shell companies, again, important for commerce. Uh, and um, and they, you know, they, you know, without them, I think we'd, you know, we'd, ha- we'd struggle. Yeah. Uh, but, but we can't think of a, any good reason for an anonymous shell company. Okay. So an anonymous one, all of a sudden there's no name on the shell company. There's, there's no way to trace who it belongs, uh, who to. belongs to. We call that the beneficial owner. So this is the person that is ultimately in control of the company. Right. And there are all kinds of ways to hide that. Uh, and the U.S. actually, uh, you know, this uh, corporate law is governed by the states. And as far as I know, there's no state in the United States that requires uh, the identification by name of the beneficial owner. Instead, it will require a nominee director or someone else that's, that, that sort of is – Nominally like in the, charge of like the company, the steward supposedly yeah. that the government could talk to. But this is the, but this is often a this is often a a, a feature that's offered to uh, customers that are getting incorporated. Um, that the that the incorporation company will say we, we can give you a nominee director. Oh, we'll just we'll let you borrow one. We'll let you borrow one, right? And that and that happened. That's very common. Interesting. Um, you know, one of the most interesting stories about that is there the, in two thousand and. Um, Nine, I believe it might have been two thousand eight. Uh, there was a, an arms shipment from uh, Iran to North Korea. Now these are two uh, of the three axes of uh, evil, yeah, right? Yeah. You know the, the George enemies, Bush, right? So right. you know these are the, you know That's weird. and and yeah. the and the, and it was a big it was a big plane, a cargo plane full of arms, you know, rocket launchers and you know surface to air missiles and and uh, all these things. Uh, and it was inter- intercepted at the Bangkok airport in Thailand. And when they, uh, you know, when they looked at the manifest of the airplane to see who had leased the airplane, it was leased to a company in New Zealand. Um, and uh, and uh, I'm trying to remember the, the the I don't know why I'm blanking on the woman's name, but but there there was a woman who was a Chinese national who had recently immigrated to New Zealand, and they arrested her in New Zealand. Uh, you know, for for yeah. busting these this arms sanctions, uh, and uh, um, she had no idea. Uh, it turns out that she'd been a patsy for this incorporation service that had her be nominated nominee director on scores of companies, and she had no idea she was involved no, she, in a huge no. arms deal that would then she make had no big idea. news in the world. No, in fact, rather she worked at Burger King actually. <laughs> Holy cow. So so uh, so so that's what a nominee director, and so and so the the ultimate beneficial owners who did the shipment of arms, you know, this illegal arms yeah. shipment. Completely untraceable. Wow. Uh, so this kind of thing happens all the time. And I guess that's where this gets hairy because um, 
the now now come in what they're calling the Panama Papers, which was the publication of 11.5 million leaked records from a law firm, Mossack Fonseca, that um, now reveals. So now people have access to all of these accounts, all of these people, names, and they're trying to figure out who they belong to. But apparently. I mean, this is where they launder money, right? Through, right. through these anonymous ones, that's where we're laundering money. And yep. I guess the big fear is that's where terrorists could get uh, money into the country, could yep. get money out of right. the country. So, what is when we hear about the Panama Papers? I mean, now uh, Putin's been attributed to some, right. one of these or two of these com- or multiple companies, I guess, and about twelve other national leaders, one hundred and forty-three politicians, um, families that are associated with this. Uh, we're talking billions and billions of dollars or trillions of dollars. I guess total, $22.9 trillion is the total sum estimated that's hidden away in these tax havens. Right. And I guess that's the other benefit is you don't have to pay taxes till yeah. the money, I guess, either comes into the country or into Canada on our other deal we were talking about. Yeah. Well, it, it, I mean, it depends on the national law. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. is not super happy about people using – these shelters illegally, and yeah. there and there are lots of there are lots of restrictions on on how you know and on where the money is earned, and and so you know Apple Apple Corporation has all of these shell companies all over the world, and they don't pay very many taxes, but as far as we can tell, that's entirely legal. Yeah, but a lot of people, that's not the case, right? right. They, they earn the money in the U.S. It, it is taxable income, but they you know through. You know, through nominee directors and anonymous shell companies, they get the money out. It sits in, you know, it sits in a in an offshore bank account. Right. Uh, it doesn't get taxed, and and uh, wow. or they don't pay taxes on it, even though it, you know, they, you know, they they have an assessment they're supposed to they're supposed to pay. Tax evasion is one of the main, uh, um, you know, ways uh, that people use anonymous shell companies. Uh, money laundering is another one, uh, and so and that those are the ones that I worry the most about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I got into this because I study international corruption. Yeah. Uh, in, in you know, because I I'm a I'm an international development scholar, and so yeah. I study you know how we get pe- you know uh, people and uh, and countries out of poverty. But one of the biggest impediments to this is you know bad government leaders that steal money from the public trust and then and then launder it right, and they, right. And, they and they get it into these offshore places, and that actually is, accounts for a large. You know, I think a large portion of the anonymous shell companies and the way they move money. So, is that the biggest issue when we're talking about the Panama Papers? Is it just that now we're seeing who's behind some of these illegal, the illegal ones? I guess right. The, the one and it's starting to expose people. I mean, David Cameron's parents right. from the UK. Yep. They're involved in they're, some they're of this. involved. But, but how do you discern between just a healthy, normal one and mm-hmm. one that's Stealing or doing something it's, nefarious. It's really hard, right? I mean, for me, one of the one of the dead giveaways is is it an anonymous shell? Is it untraceable? That's it, right? And, but of course, if it's untraceable, you can't find out who did it. Uh, and so, um, I mean, what, what's what's interesting is that the names that are coming out, right? Those are for companies that are not anonymous. Yeah. Right. Because Mossack Fonseca ha- actually kept the records. That's true. Right? Huh? And and Panama was one of our weakest performers. We did a global study uh, of 181 countries, uh, the the firms in their in their um, the incorporation firms and law firms that do business law, cor- corporate law in these countries, 
we contacted um, roughly 4,000 companies in two different rounds. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and it was kind of a secret shopper yeah. uh, exercise. And uh, this is my, co- my co-authors and I. And, um, and we, uh, uh, we learned that some countries aren't so good. Right. Some of the best performers were, were, were actually the, the, uh, the tax havens. Were the Panama they, yeah. was among the worst. Were they really? Yeah. And, and worse, just meaning in managing it and in, in allowing illegal activity to the, take our place. Our key question is would they allow us to incorporate with, without giving the name of the beneficial owner? So would they enable an anonymous shell company? Interesting. Uh, and uh, and, and the, the hardest places to get an anonymous shell were actually the Cayman Islands. Which you wouldn't think, right. uh, you know, would be would be a good performer, and then the British Channel Islands, uh, you know, Isle of Man, uh, uh, Jersey and Guernsey, uh, and there were lots of other places. BVI was a very strong performer. Mm. Did, did you know all, nearly in every single instance asked for notarized photo ID? That's the is standard. Really? That's right? the standard. And um, but Panama was a, was among the weakest, among especially among the tax havens, because the tax havens as a whole were better performers. Largely because they had lots of pressure put on them right. by the United States and the UK and other governments to be more transparent. And then all of a sudden, boom, somebody breaks the code, right. gets in, steals the records. And right. now – but it's interesting because you, you can now start to tie money to people. And, yes, right. Um, yeah, that's in, right. And, and it's yeah. not clear to me that there has been uh, – you know, I haven't seen anything um, involving anyone – you know, sort of famous right. that, that is truly illegal. Yeah. It's just unseemly. That's, I right? guess, That's what it challenge. is. And you don't know, um, right? I mean, yeah. you don't know. Well, and what's fascinating to me is that there aren't very many Americans that are well-known. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, the, the ones that have come out have been, you know, sort of, you know, questionable stuff, right? <laughs> um, but, they're, but they're not really, you know, uh, um, household names, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think that might be because the easiest place in the world to get an anonymous shell company is the United States. Is the United States. And that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. If, it's, if it is so nefarious in, in many instances and dangerous in a way because it could lead to you know, terrorism or at least the financing right. of terrorism, the U.S., we're the best at it. We're the best at making it easy for you to get your shell company organized. I All want right. to come back. We'll talk sure. about that. More with Dr. Daniel Nilsson here from Brigham Young University, professor and associate chair of the political sciences department here at Brigham Young University. We'll take a break, folks. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Daniel Nilsson's joining us today. We are talking about uh, shell companies and offshore accounts, really, because I guess that could be every type of account imaginable. I mean, trust accounts, I'm, I'm assuming, um, uh, I guess, um, are, they, are they bank accounts? Is that where the money is stored? We're asking all of these questions to Dr. Daniel Nilsson. He's a professor and associate chair of political science here at Brigham Young University. He's also the founder and principal investigator of Aid Data, um, and we're glad to have you back, Dr. Nielsen. It's my pleasure. Talk about Aid Data. What is what is what was your uh, research using Aid Data? Uh, uh, good question. I mean, it, I'm really interested in, in the way money moves around the world, especially in the way it might help relieve poverty. And so, a group of us uh, at BYU and the College of William and Mary. Um, 
Uh, now it's expanded to include the University of Texas. Uh, you know, many years ago, 10 years ago or so, uh, started a, this group, A Data, which now has the largest repository of information on foreign aid. That's great. Uh, so, you know, it, it's and where not, it's going and how it's yeah, going. Yeah, and mostly, mostly official aid. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm really interested in all of the money. And so that's why the, you know, we wrote this book, Global Shell Games. Uh, to, to track some of the some of the money that goes maybe for not such good purposes, interesting, yeah, uh, internationally. But I'm very interested in that. Um, Fascinating, and that, isn't I mean, that wild? You're you're looking at charitable kind of giving, and then you also have to look at the the darker stuff. Yeah, right. I mean, and you want a world where money flows freely, because that helps people, right? It gets it gets capital into the hands of entrepreneurs in developing countries who know what you know they're. You know their customers want, yeah. Uh, and and as far as I can tell, that's the surest way to to economic development is to give people good jobs. Uh, and to get right. good jobs, you got to have good ideas for products, right? And and so you want you want a system that is that is free flowing like this, but 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 you don't want it to be free flowing in a way that law enforcement can't, can't step in yeah. and and actually get the bad guys. Is it um, because there are benefits? It seems to be able to have a little anonymity. Internationally, like you were describing, buying property somewhere that you don't yeah. have to go in necessarily under your name, but under another right. company name. Yeah, and so limited liability yeah. corporations, which is what we were asking for in our study, and we stopped once they told us what documents were required. So if they said, you know, we need you know notarized photo ID, we said thank you, our needs have been met, right? That's uh, all and, you needed, uh, and so um, that's all we were interested in. Now, my my co-author Jason Sharman. Uh, a professor at Griffith University in Australia, he actually went all the way down the line uh, like 45 times uh, and, and did everything except the final transfer of cash, uh, of money to buy the company. Wow. Uh, and so you know, we're pretty confident that, that what we learned up front was very similar to what would have happened at the end. No one changed their minds later. Yeah. But these, um, these countries that are offering them, again, like you were saying, in the United States – we we're we're the easiest place to get a shell company. That's correct. And I mean, places like Wyoming are putting out a lot. Nevada, Nevada, are putting out a lot. Montana, three yeah. of you know three of our neighbors. And yeah. is that what what is it? Are they do they make money doing this? How oh, much yeah. money is made? This is, this do is, they get a percentage? Do they get a yes? So a tax? yes. So they I mean they charge a fee, uh, and and basically what they're doing is retailing companies. So they've uh, they've hired lawyers. Uh, or or purchased companies from from wholesalers who have a team of lawyers, and all they do is is file the the necessary information uh, to to get um, you know a license for for a company yeah. with the government. Is um, and and so and so now they have these companies, and you can buy and sell companies just like you can buy and sell anything. Wow! But some of these companies, you know, internationally. Now, most like Fonseca is a law firm, so they do other things too. But mostly, what they do is this: is offshore, you know, uh, accounts and uh, and companies, um, and uh, at least as far as I know, uh, yeah. and uh, that seems to be what's come out. Um, but but some of these companies are worth you know hundreds of millions of dollars yeah. internationally, and most like Fonseca is one of them. Right? It's very very lucrative. And so that's uh, why this was such a coup because it was a big deal, major yeah, issue, yeah, a big deal. How is it? How is it helping us? I mean. It is creating some transparency, apparently more transparency than than at least these the the people whose records were infiltrated. They didn't want everyone to know this, right? Yeah. So I think just you know this is one of the beautiful things about you know open societies is that is that when when the spotlight is shined, 
you know, on, you know, on stuff that, you know, was happening in the dark, uh, in the shadows. Now people get interested and they start demanding more change. Um, for many years, uh, the U.S. Congress led by, you know, by the Senate has tried to change these laws in the United States to make us so we're not the leading – The capital know, of it. The leading offshore, you know, uh, um, offshore location, uh, easiest place to get an anonymous shell company. Uh, but it's always been blocked, right? Uh, because these incorporation services are big business, yeah, and they don't—they don't want it changed. They don't want the law changed. In fact, President Obama was actually a co-sponsor on the on this bill, you know, many years ago. Uh, Carl Levin is was pushing it, you know, uh, during his career. So, um, uh, but now actually, it looks like there might be some action. Oh, really? Uh, and uh, you know, it's still sort of you know, er, I mean, several bills have been introduced. Yeah, uh, and we'll see if they go forward. They might get blocked again. Uh, but you know, I think people start to realize that that this is you know there's real harm. Tell us the dark side. So what? Give us the worst case scenarios that that which is why we need to create some legislation. Um, so you know, I mean, there are lots of stories that we have in the book um, that that uh, you know that you know make us make us really worry. Um, you know, as far as we can tell, uh, terrorist financing. Is the, is kind of the scariest thing for everyone, but there's not much evidence that they use anonymous shells that much. Yeah, I mean the the best case we could find that that had federal indictments was actually one that took place here in Utah. What? Uh, a couple of um, of relatives and friends of uh, one of the Al Qaeda, uh, you know, uh, head uh, leaders um, had. Uh, make sure I get the details right. They um, they used some some kind of phony companies to do some real estate fraud, and and allegedly sent the money back to Al Qaeda. Oh. Um, and uh, uh, but in in Utah, it's hard to get anonymous, anonymous shell companies. These weren't anonymous, but they were shell companies. So they could be tracked down. They could be tracked, but they could only only be tracked until the money. Left gone, right. the U.S. to another shell company somewhere else, okay. and then and then the trail gone. goes cold. But they were tied, you know, with Al Qaeda. Had you know had ties to, hmm. uh, you know, to some of the the financiers of Al Qaeda. But it turns out terrorism is not that expensive. Yeah, right. It just doesn't cost that much money, and so the amounts we're talking about are really limited, especially compared to the corruption. Right. And the other thing too is that. You know, in our study, we did an experiment. It was it was a huge global experiment, as far as we can tell, the first of its kind, uh, and um, and we changed the we changed the the information we gave to the companies. Uh, so we used we used we used aliases. Yeah. So we pretended to be someone we're not, uh, and uh, uh, and it was the only way we could figure out how to do it. And you know, we we got clearance from from the. Institutional Review Board right. that does the IRB because this you is got, the, yeah. you know, because this is important right. research that we need to learn about, and um, uh, and we and we also changed the profile of the requester. So these were all consultants, but some of them, you know, most of them were from, uh, you know, small power, uh, you know, low corruption European countries, uh, and but but then sometimes we would come from other countries. So we we had this uh, profile we called uh, we called Guinea Stan. Oh, so boy. it was the four Guineas, yeah. uh, Papua New Guinea, Equatorial yeah. Guinea, uh, Guinea and Guinea-Bissau, uh, and then four of the Central Asian republics. And the only thing that, that, that those two groups have in common is that they are among the most corrupt countries in the world. Wow. And, and that and that profile, we said, you know, we said we were um, we were working in government procurement, which is by far the most corrupt sector. 
And what we found is that if that profile made the request, um, many companies that would have answered the Europeans didn't answer. But it turns out those were the good guys. Those are the ones that would have demanded notarized photo ID. Oh, wow. Uh, they dropped out because that was too sketchy They're for them. They're not playing that one. But the bad guys, the ones that never asked for photo ID, they stayed in. So it actually – corruption actually made it easier to get an anonymous shell company. Really? Uh, that was yeah. not the case for terrorism. So terrorism – you know, we had a terrorist profile that came from, you know, one of four sort of ter- countries involved in terrorism or, you know, been linked to terrorism. And we said we worked in Saudi Arabia for Islamic charities. So we tried to raise every red flag we could for yeah. terrorism. Now that got people's attention. And in that case – both the good guys dropped out, not surprisingly, okay. but also the bad guys did, right? Those who were, were they not – They don't want to mess with terrorists. The, the guys that were not, you know, that were not demanding yeah. uh, uh, documents, they were dropping out at greater rates. But that, but that was just statistically significant. It turns out that if you started looking for – if you were a terrorist and looking for an anonymous shell company, started at breakfast, you could be done by, by lunch and have an anonymous shell company in your hands. Set up. Yeah. So I guess though too, I mean it, it seems like drug deals or like really large yeah, illegal so, right, the, the, businesses. Yes. Drugs, um, you know, this is – they do lots of money laundering. In fact, the international rules that require this notarized photo ID, they were, they were, they were begun – you know, in the fight against money laundering from drugs. This is like, part of the drug war. I guess, I guess as a, just as a layperson, I, I hear the stories about the Panama Papers. You hear that somehow um, Putin is, you know, quietly pushing billions of dollars through yeah. some of these shell companies. Um, is there anything, what could I do to make it safer or at least push my legislators? Yeah, two things. One, um, you know, it would be good to press Congress uh, for tighter laws. It's way easier to get a co- uh, to get a company in the United States than it is to get a driver's license. Mm. Uh, and in fact, when you get a company, they don't ask for your driver's license. Don't they? Really? They don't ask for any ID. Yeah. Right, uh, for the for the beneficial owner. So that would be good. It would yeah. be really good to press uh, for for tighter laws. I'm not particularly interested in. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to limit uh, uh, commerce. Right. But I certainly would like law enforcement to have access uh, you know, to the beneficial owners, know who they are so that if bad things happen with that company, they can track them down. And quickly. Right. But I guess that's it. That, that they'll, they'll then take it very quickly to another shell company that is anonymous. So they'll just yeah, and so, move it, it. So the other thing is it needs to be international. I mean now right now the biggest problem as far as we could tell from our study was in, in the United States. Delaware was the easiest place in the world to get an anonymous shell. Uh, followed closely by Wyoming, Nevada, Montana. Hmm. Uh, and so um, – but the other thing is, you know, we need to shut down, you know, most of this. And, and what's interesting is that is that the the Financial Action Task Force, which is the international organization charged with, with, with solving this problem, they've had lots of successes. So those, shell, those, those, those um, offshore tax havens – uh, that that are so good at, at complying, and they always, nearly always, asked for notarized photo ID from us. Um, they didn't used to be, but now they are That's because great. of the pressure that they come under right. uh, from the Financial Action Task Force. They have a blacklist, and if you show up in that blacklist, you start. You start losing investment, and that's bad for you. Yeah, and so they work very hard to get off the blacklist. That's and so, and so we could we can use the F- FATF for this as well, but it needs to be with with greater pressure. Wow, great! I mean, it really is. It's it's something that most of us don't know anything about, and yet yeah. it's going right. on and to the tune of trillions of dollars, and trillions yeah. of dollars of probably tax loss. 
that is a big deal, right? So, I mean, there's a bunch of people in this country free riding on our tax system. Yeah. And that just doesn't seem fair no. to most of us. We need to get uh, And that. they're doing it, yeah, and they're doing it because they can, uh, because the international financial system is, is, is very good for business, yeah. but, but yet too good in a, few, in a few spots probably. Right. Oh, man. Fascinating stuff. Well, we appreciate you being here, Dr. Nielsen. Again, um, the book is Global Shell Games. Go check it out, folks. I, apparently, we'll get the inside scoop on a lot of dirty dirty business. That's kind of scary. Uh, Dr. Daniel Nelson, again, Professor and Associate Chair of Political Science at Brigham Young University. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Interesting stuff, my friends. Interesting. Man, we're learning, aren't we? Uh, who'd have thunk? I mean, you knew it, right? Businesses can get dirty. You've heard of money laundering. You've heard of the offshore bank accounts that everybody beat you up on. We'll be right back. Continue the discussion after this break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So, now you're going to go get a little offshore bank account? What a great problem to have. Where am I going to hide my millions? Well, right now I just hide it under my bed in a wig box. These younger generation don't even know what a wig box is. Box for your wig? How did you know that? Um, Context clues... Brilliant. Yeah. Man, you're smart. <laughs> Try to see if you can figure out this one, okay? You ready? Yep. Uh, a pizza. Uh, so a fake pizza delivery man arrests a mafia boss. Ready? Hang on for the ride. A pizza and soccer-loving mafia boss in Naples is on his way to prison, not the Museum of Italian Stereotypes. <laughs> Cops say 35-year-old Roberto Manganiello was arrested at his home Saturday night by police officers disguised as a pizza delivery man. See? This is so stereotypical. He had been on the run since 2013 and was listed as one of Italy's 100 most dangerous criminals for crimes. That included, by the way, an alleged 2004 double murder that started a bloody feud in the Camorra uh, Mafia clan. Police say he was running a drug and extortion racket from his home in North Naples, where he was arrested without incident after opening the door to the phony pizza boys. Two, I guess, or so delivery boys got him. The Independent notes, uh, which is their newspaper, that after the arrest, Manganiello's day got even worse when his home team uh, from Napoli was beaten 2-0 by Inter Milan ending its hopes of the first league title since 1990. Oh, come on! I know. So all of a sudden, you just think you're going to get a pizza. See, that honestly is about as disappointing as it gets. Have you ever just been waiting for the pizza guy? The anticipation for the pizza. You get arrested. And then all of a sudden... Your soccer team loses. Oh! And you find out, let's just say, you're sitting in your robe in the back of the police car. And the, starving. The radio's on. Yeah. And then you find out they lost. Mm. I feel so bad for these mafia bosses. Honestly, though, is there anything better? Work with me here, Ben. 
anything better than the first bite of a warm pizza. It has to be the right – like it can't be hot. It has to be – Yeah, you don't want to like burn your mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you don't want it cold. True. You want it – that first bite, it's just – it's the little triangle at the center of the pizza pie. What I do at my house, I just take every one of those first bites and just put them back. Well, if you think about it, you need to – when choosing a pizza – like shop, you need to choose one that's like the perfect distance from your house. Totally. So they don't get it there too fast. Yes. And you don't like... – And make sure that they're not near a police station. True. True. Because that – That could ruin your week. But really that is so stereotypical. How did you How did you catch Mr. Gotti? He you was eating pizza. He was ordering some pizza and we just had some guys deliver the pizza. Yeah. Boy, I do not do Italian accents. Many would say I don't do any accent, even English. You can do a good Irish one. Okay. Every morning. Top of the morning to you. Okay, never mind. (laughs) That was kind of more – that seems Scottish to me. That was like Mm Irish-American. A little Irish Gaelic. Who knows? We're coming right back, folks. Stick with us. We will be uh, giving you the tools, the information you need to solve those there problems and keep your uh, life happy and healthy. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. For some of you out there that, uh, that really like being the pessimist, you might be sitting here thinking, this is just all too positive. I can't stand this guy. The reality of um, what what we're finding is, and remember, for years when we were studying psychology, we would study it through kind of a lens of abnormal psychology. We would only study people that had major, you know, abnormal issues or um, it, you know things that they were dealing with. We would we would talk and focus about those that would hear things, those that would you know couldn't couldn't keep a job, those that were constantly having problems. But what they found out is um, when you're studying psychology, it's just as important to study not just the broken side of life, but the success side of life, what, what actually is producing results for other people. That form of study is called positive psychology. People that feel really positive in life do things differently than those that feel really negative in life. We think positivity is the norm, a lot of people would think, right? So historically, we would study the negative people, and we've got for years, you know, decades, a lot of information and theoretical approaches for how to deal with the abnormal, the negative side of of people's lives. However, People that are really have a lot of energy and excitement and joie de vivre for life, right? Um, those people 
do something different than those that don't have the energy, that don't have optimism, that don't have flow, don't feel like they're living in a kind of an optimal life. That's all that our last guest, Michelle Gielan, was talking about. And I've seen it change couples, for example, incredibly. When a couple comes in and talks to me, they can talk on two sides of an issue. It's the same issue, right? So if the issue is about money, which tends to be the number one thing couples say they can't talk about, you can come in and we can then spend the next hour focusing on the fact that we don't have money. And he spends the money and he buys video games and we don't even have time and money for it. And he should be working. And we talk about everything that doesn't work with the video game. Um, and that's where a lot of times the conversation goes. And we go there because we think we're going to solve the problem. That will solve it. By talking about what's broken, we will solve it. The downside to that part of the conversation, though, is it burns us out. And then all of a sudden, nobody has any more energy to deal with any more talk about money. And one way to blow that up is just then he might fight back and say, are you kidding me? Who bought a $400 purse? My video games only cost five, 50 bucks. I can buy eight video games for your purse. It's not a purse. It's a bag. And now we're fighting about purses and bags and video games. It's all on not just the negative side, but it's on the problem side is what I might call it. However, that's not what they want. What they want is the peace of financial stability. What they want is to know this person wants to know that they're safe financially. They want to know that they can talk about it and they're on the same page. So what I found is a lot of times you can cut through hours of fighting, hours of smoke, I call it, hours of starvation, if you would just start to listen for what they really want. When the wife brings up financial problems, what she really wants is financial peace. If she would bring financial peace as a discussion and we talk about how we can create more financial peace and safety and security and a savings account, then we can start getting into the solutions. Instead, because we're so hurt and afraid and and we are scared, we start from the negative side and then we have to dig ourselves out of the negative hole. Does that make sense? It's called, it's the appreciative approach. It's, it's not being positive. It's actually just talking about what you want instead of what you don't want. If you keep talking about what you don't want, you reinforce what you don't want. And amazingly, it appears. It self-fulfills. But if what you want is financial stability, if what you want is that we're on the same page, if what you want is that... I want to see that we're both productively working together to get our money and, and we're saving it. Um, I want that we have similar values financially. Have those conversations. Well, yeah, it's easy for you, but you're not married to my wife who spends like crazy. Here we go. Make sense? It's not just a bunch of positivity. I promise. It's a bunch of productivity. It's more productive to discuss real-life solutions on the, on the positive side. It works, and it does a body good. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. You know, I'm convinced that dating, it, it's different. It's not what it used to be, and that's why I think as uh, the older generation, we always look back and we're like, ah, you kids just aren't doing it quite right. But we, with technology and the advancement of technology, the advancement and uh, equalization of women in, the, in life and in the workplace, 
And we say they're equal, except again, if it's still if they're still ending earning sixty cents on the dollar or less, um, or I mean, sorry, forty cents on the dollar or thirty cents on the dollar to a man, then you know the idea of asking a lot of guys out isn't financially <laughs> responsible. So we we need to blow up some of these paradigms. And I guess it's one thing if you want to, you could just sit there and be mad. Uh, and and wish that the world would change so this would all fly straight for you, or you you can adjust. Um, one of my big beliefs when I talk uh, to singles groups and singles organizations, uh, certain people just kind of swim into a pool. I call it just a pool, a pool of single candidates, right? Um, and they just swim in, and they they just they're they they're good at finding what they want, and they. They're good at and socially skilled enough to make it happen, and then they swim out of the pool with their future partner, and then they'll go date, and if it doesn't work, they'll go back to the pool. But some people spend so much time in the pool that we actually forget what our goal is, right? And we we start commiserating with the pool. We start hanging out with the pool. We start making plans with the entire pool. And our belief is that we're more likely to find a, a partner if we are in the pool. But the downside to being in the pool is uh, some people are intimidated by pools of swimming singles. It's scary. I can't tell you, and I don't get it. I think men are losing confidence, and women are gaining confidence, but also won't take the initiative to go start in, you know, initiating the dates and making them happen. And... Again, more and more, I'm I'm working with the guy that just doesn't dare do it. And I, he goes up to a single and feels dismissed or not not safe. I don't know how you fix that. And so I think what people do is they fall back on something that's a lot safer for them, which is an app. And, and then all of a sudden they might join into kind of more of a hookup culture where I'm not, I don't want to date you, but let's, yeah, we could go meet and maybe kiss, make out, but don't, don't make me, don't make me relate to you. Don't make me find out about your family. I don't want to meet your dad. And so we got to be careful. If you were, if you were in that hookup culture, you're going to be hurt, right? And you're not necessarily learning how to create a more intimate, deep relationship. Um, the rules are changing a bit, and we got to be willing to change with them if we want to be in the game. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. How powerful is it to be able to look at your own thinking and uh, your own language? How many times have you sat there and had somebody selling you something and you thought, wow, I do need this? magical berry to, to change my life. You, you weren't even thinking about, you know, buying a timeshare. It wasn't even on your mind. Yeah, that happened to me one time when this guy sold me some beans. He said yeah. they were magic. Yeah. But they never grew. Right. Yeah. And that's when you made bean salad. Three no. bean salad, five bean salad. No, they were rotten by the time I dug them back up. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, a sucker's born every day. Did you learn anything in our last segment? Um, I, I was kind of sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe listen up to this segment because maybe we can still teach you something. It's such a it's such a battle we all fight where we want to belong. We want to, you know, we appreciate the neighbors sharing what they are sharing with us because, you know, we don't want to be left out. 
except sometimes we do. Do you have the ability to see through what others are doing? Do you have that insight? You don't – I think like uh, the good Dr. Sherman was saying earlier, we, we are all going to be a little naive. It's, it's part of humanity. But you don't have to be a whole lot naive. And if you've been kicked in the head before, you don't have to offer your head for more kicking. We can start to notice the trends, notice the, the words, notice the, the content that people are sending us. And even as you listen to the political rhetoric, can, can you find an exception to what Donald Trump is saying or to what Hillary Clinton is saying? Is there an exception to this? Um, can, can your opposition, for example, use the idea that they could build walls to keep Americans out? Yeah. If your opposition could use the exact same fact or point, then you're probably starting to just jump on the rhetoric bandwagon. I get it. It's exciting. It's powerful. It's it's what you want to you want to, you know, be a part of a movement, you want to be a part of change. But just because it's stated strongly and factually doesn't mean it's actually factual. You can believe something, you know, very strongly. Think about it. When was the last time you actually totally believed something and then found out it not to be true? And it's hard because in order to do this, we have to open our minds up. And it's called critical thinking. And one of the things I think we battle as a country is we're, I don't know that we're really great yet at teaching people to be critical thinkers. Yet we live in an internet world where not being able to think critically could be to your detriment, right? Because otherwise you're just going to keep drawing back to the same well of information. And it doesn't make it one way right or wrong. It just makes it not complete. So one of the words that uh, I've been looking up and recently studying is a little bit about the word perfect or perfection which um, I found to mean um, more than just that you are absolutely without flaw. It might also mean that you are just more complete, more whole. Whole means healthy. And a lot of our interpretations, as Dr. Sherman was talking about, most of our interpretations of other people, of other groups of people, of most of our prejudice, most of our assumptions and interpretations are not whole. They're not complete. For every uh, person, uh, Muslim, uh, you talk about in this world that is going to come in and try to kill us, I can show you a, a million exceptions. There are just as many exceptions to the rule as as you can find. So be careful. Look for whole answers, complete answers. Watch your bias and watch how strongly you argue something. Um, Because many times, even though you feel you're completely right, you're going to find out you're not. There's still more you're missing. Let's open it up, broaden it up. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends. And uh, all you movie lovers, right? You know you love to go to a good movie, but uh, I don't know if you know this. Disney recently announced a lineup of live-action films that include... Tell me if you've ever heard any of these stories. The Jungle Book, Beauty and the Beast, Pinocchio, and The Sword in the Stone... You know, many of these will be remakes of the originals, like uh, much like we saw with Cinderella in 2015. A number of sequels are also coming up uh, this year. The number of sequels and remakes begs the question, where has the originality gone in Hollywood? Is the film industry afraid of new ideas? Our guest today is Amanda Klein, co-author of Cycles, Sequels, Spinoffs, Remakes, and Reboots, multiplicities in the film and television world. One of the things that she mentioned in her article as they're continuing to do their work to get her up uh, is um, she wrote an article in the Atlantic.com and uh, she was talking about the fact that you you may have heard of a movie that came out uh, called Battleship. And uh, it was a really popular movie. I think it actually appeared at the same time Transformers uh, was released. And so... Um, it didn't get as much attention because, you know, Transformers kind of stole its thunder. In fact, I remember watching Transformers waiting for a carrier to be eaten by something, anyway, which was a mix of my brain thinking Transformers and Battleship are the same thing. Um, but one of the things that uh, you may not know is that movie uh, Battleship, um, which, by the way, made $300 million back on the $200 million they invested into it, it actually – was um, announced because Monopoly um, uh, is is starting to take some of its board games and see if they can't make some big screen treatments around them, including Action Man and, yes, even Hungry Hungry Hippos. So Hollywood is desperate to get um, these, these uh, I guess, topics and ideas. In her article, though, she, she you know, talks about that. Why is it that we we have these blockbusters, even like for example, the Star Wars is it's already got a great brand, right? And um, so, if it's got a great brand, why wouldn't you just keep putting it out there? Why wouldn't you just keep making more and more and more, you know, sequels and a series around it? Well, you know, financially, it's great for money, but I sit there and I wonder, where's the original idea? Where's the original story? I guess these franchises become so valuable because they also are able to then go hook in and you can now start having apparel and clothes, right? And um, you can have toys and figures and all of this other money that can be hanging around it. Remember, um, even Disney now, is, is who's the master of all of this, they, they still are going back to reboot a lot of their branding. So is the branding what we're looking for? Is the branding – is that what's best for us? And is it, the, is it really us as customers? Is it you as a customer and your love of the reboots that keep driving Hollywood? Or is Hollywood just giving us more stuff that they can make more money on? That's what we're going to get to. We'll take a break. We'll come back uh, with Amanda Klein um, from East Carolina. She's a professor there and also um, author of the book Cycles, Sequels, Spinoffs, Remakes, and Reboots. Folks, stick with us. We'll be right back. Ghostbusters! There's something strange in your neighborhood. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we finally were able to figure it out with our next guest, Amanda Klein. Dr. Amanda Klein is joining us. She is, again, a professor at uh, East Carolina University and has co-authored the book Cycles, Sequels, Spinoffs, Remakes, and Reboots, Multiplicities in Film and Television. She's here today to talk to us about uh, where the originality in filmmaking has gone. Amanda Klein, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, I'm glad we could uh, figure out our tech. <laughs> I tell you, it's the tech that'll kill you, and it's the greatest it benefit ever. Well, we appreciate sure. you being here. Um, before we were talking about all of the remakes, you know, Disney's uh, Beauty and the Beast, Pinocchio, Sword in the Stone. What's what's going on with Hollywood? Why so many sequels? Why so many remakes? Well, I mean, th- there's a few things here. I think the first thing to remember is that it is incredibly expensive to make a motion picture. And uh, studios are becoming increasingly risk averse, uh, given, you know, there, there are so many ways to consume content now beyond going to a movie theater. So uh, right now, if it seems that there are a lot more sequels, a lot more remakes and reboots, I think overall there are more. And I think it's a reaction to uh, an overall anxiety in Hollywood about having safe bets, you know, mm. having properties that you know are going to make money because everybody knows kids love cinderella they love beauty and the beast it's not an unknown um they can budget for it they know they can do marketing tie-ins they can sell happy meals you know with, with toys inside um but having said that um this is a very common practice in hollywood this has been happening in the movie industry since you know since the invention of cinema so it's not that it's a new practice uh, but I would say definitely right now we're experiencing an uh, an increase overall, yeah. so, um, so and I think it, it says a lot about the economics. That's it, huh? Right so it's it's really kind of an economic uh, kind of one reason. I guess the driving yeah. reason is the economics. Is it? But I wonder, and and you see it because you you see it in your university and in school. I mean, I, I would assume the creativity, the originality, those scripts exist, but you're saying mm-hmm. they're just too risky. They're they're unknown properties. That's correct. And so where you're going to see kind of um, the non-sequel, uh, non-reboot, uh, non-remake uh, style stories are going to probably be in the independent film uh, uh, world, maybe a little bit. You know, if you look at Hulu or Netflix, where um, you can really see it in television right now, they're taking a lot of chances on inventive, interesting, weird TV uh, because there's so many opportunities and it's lower risk. Mm. Um, Anytime it's cheaper to make a a cultural product, you're going to have more risk. When it's more expensive, you're going to have more conservatism. So right now in Hollywood, if you want to make a lot of money, if you want to put a star and pay their big salary, um, if you want to get a lot of money from the studio um, and from investors, then you really do need to um, you need to have a property that you're sure is going to make money. And so that's why they keep kind of going back to the same wells. And then, of course, it's really good for you know the way media conglomerates are set up right now, where you might own a magazine, um, a toy company, music movies, they're all under the same umbrella. Mm. So you make one product and then you can sell it across all those different platforms. So that's another motivation. Yeah. Is it, um, I mean, you, you do see that, don't you, with all of the original mm-hmm. series from Netflix. And then I, I don't know, do, do, do those ever spin into, you know, major motion pictures? 
Um, I guess it's too early to tell. This is sort of a new phenomenon that's happening in television. Television is sort of experiencing, um, I think, a lot of what was going on with the cinema when it became much cheaper to make movies right after World War II when we have, you know, portable equipment, people could film on location. You know, you didn't need a huge budget or a studio to make a film. Um, and I imagine it's going to happen again with movies. You know, all of these things move in in cycles. So eventually, I think, especially given how cheap it is to make a movie, say, on an iPhone, um, yeah. that we're going to start to see a shift. But right now, this is kind of where we are um, with movies. And people, I mean, to be fair, people are enjoying it. <laughs> You know, yeah. they're, they're paying to go. So there's something that's still appealing. Something's working. Now, in your book, um, you, you talk about, I think one of your chapters is called Vicious Cycle, Jaws and Revenge of Nature Films of the 1970s. But like Jaws, for example, as a sequel, it seemed to kind of lose some of its power with every iteration, every new, mm. uh, new show. Is that, do they worry about that? Um, you mean, does Hollywood worry yeah. about that? <laughs> um, I, well, so I or guess is it, it just you know, push out the next one. Statements, but I, I would say, um, you know, I think some sequels are better than the original. Some are worse. Some are about the same. So I, I wouldn't say it's a uniform phenomenon, mm -hmm. but I will say, you know, if you grab kind of any given sequel and compare it to something that's not a sequel, Will the quality be better in the, you know, the, the more original film? Possibly. But um, I think we also, as a society, really put this value on this concept of originality, even though there are very few things that are original right. in, in culture. Everything is an update, a twist. You know, Shakespeare's plays were, were basically iterations on previous plays. Mm -hmm. So everything that we think of as sort of original and high art isn't really all that original at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I guess do, do, do these get awarded? I, I, I'm not sure I've seen, do they get awarded as much? And I mean, like you see uh, with the Academy Awards, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's the sequels that keep taking You're all right. the prizes. Yeah. So that's really, I thought this year was super interesting because we had two films that were part of franchises. We had the Star Wars movie and we had Mad Max. Mm -hmm. And they got, if you looked at the awards, um, Mad Max got so many yeah. nominations for editing, um, for, I want to say, script, uh, maybe cinematography. Uh, but it did not end up winning the big prize, which is very telling, I think, because I think Mad Max um, Fury Road was a great example of taking an established story property and really doing something interesting and new with it. So just because you're making a sequel or a remake or a reboot doesn't automatically mean you're making something devoid right. of originality or interest. I thought that was, I mean, my, that was probably my favorite movie of, of the past year. I thought mm. that was just a brilliant film. And I do think that there was prejudice against the franchise. I think that's why it didn't sweep more uh, awards. I think it deserved a lot more than it got. Yeah. I mean, it's, I wonder, that's what I was wondering is what the artists feel like. I mean, I know sometimes people feel like they're typecast. And when you're, I guess you're typecast as Han Solo. Does right. that bother you? And do you want, do these, uh, do the artists want to get out of this hole? 
Well, so now you're getting into sort of, uh, you know, talking about how Oscars are awarded, which is a whole kind of different system of what's valued in Hollywood. Um, And it is sort of a contradiction because on the one hand, Hollywood is making um, all of these, you know, multiplicities. And at the same time, the Oscars are telling us that that's not what we value as a culture. Um, And so there's always there's historically, I think, been a not I don't think, but a lot of other people have have argued that there's a real disconnect between what gets an Oscar and what the American people actually pay money to see every year. Mm. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of a, a, a different story, but um, yeah, I think there are plenty of actors who feel that their work is disrespected because they're not in, you know, spotlight or um, the big short yeah. or, you know, the, these other movies that were, were nominated for best picture. Do you, do you sense that going forward, we're going to have, you know, more of the, the Netflix kind of model um, with these, these kind of independent films, kind of more of the Sundance films that will be available on, uh, on different outlets? So we might create a more diverse type of kind of the big stuff coming from Hollywood that's maybe, I guess, more marketing focused versus mm-hmm. the, the small. Yeah, I do. I think that's probably where, if it's going to happen, that's where it's going to go. It's going to end up on these smaller kind of distribution platforms. So we may not be seeing them in the theaters anymore. Um, It may be that getting into a theater means that it is going to be one of these kind of big event pictures and that um, other kind of more experimental projects that are a little bit off the beaten path, they're going to appear on, you know, uh, these various platforms that you can access through your computer or television. So, I mean, it's an exciting time to study the media for sure. And I don't, I think some people kind of wring their hands and say, oh, where did all the originality go? But You know, it's really it, it's okay. We'll be fine. We'll be fine. <laughs> There's still lots of original ideas out there. Yeah, um, is for sure. As the author, Amanda, uh, again, the author of cycles, sequels, spinoffs, remakes, and reboots, multiplicities in film and television. What what is how? What do you see the future as being for us? Like, um, what what are some of the trends that you see and and the things that most of us that don't study media and television um, and film. What's coming down the pike? Well, so uh, unfortunately, I I wish I could see the future. I can't see the future. It'd be awesome if I could. Um, but uh, what I kind of hope is going to happen, and I see sort of inklings of this, is that there's been a lot of pushback. I mean, there's historically been a lot of pushback, but especially lately on the whiteness, um, the male-centeredness of Hollywood. And so... I am starting to to hope that we're going to get a lot more films with um, a more diverse range of characters and stories being told. And it's happening a little bit. Um, and I'm hoping that the future will reflect that more. Um, you definitely see it in, like I said, in, in television. You see a lot of experimentation. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in, you know, sort of more more big budget TV shows like Empire and Scandal, you know, we're we're showing that as a society, we want to see casts that aren't just all white. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we're going to see more diversity overall in Hollywood, um, whether that's just going to be, you know, in terms of superheroes, we're just going to yeah. have more diverse superheroes. I don't know. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to – Hollywood can't keep doing what it's doing, which is alienating big, big chunks of the American population. I think eventually people are going to turn away from hmm. that. So – well, and that's that's interesting too, right? Because a lot of these like comic books, I mean, I'm, they, a lot of these characters were written thirty years ago, 
That's right. Uh, and so right. all of a sudden we have to somehow bridge the lack of diversity of the last 40 to 50 years and create mm-hmm. characters today who who I guess they just eventually get the rights to adjust the characters and make them more diverse. Is that what yep, the authors, maybe... the writers do? I mean, the executive um... producers. Well, so there's there are some problems with these kind of established story properties because one, like you mentioned, there's, you know, people own the rights to these characters. And then the other are, you know, kind of the, the old school fans who really get oh, very that's true. furious. The purist, huh? Yeah. Right? Yeah. They they just uh, there was talk of having a black Spider-Man at one point and, oh, the Internet just lost its mind. So, oh, wow. you know, I, I think we need to kind of get some new characters um, that reflect the changing demographics of our country. Um, so, and, and I think that's going to happen. You see, you see little kind of inklings of, of change in mm. Hollywood. So, well, and a I'm lot of female good. characters too, right? Because yeah. I'm not sure that there was always a lot of uh, as uh, no. many female, you know, <laughs> superheroes. No. And, and if you followed any of the uh, discussion of the star Wars, uh, film that just came out i mean people were incredibly upset that there was a female hero um even though this was a new kind of a new story uh very upset about that people are upset that there was a black stormtrooper so i mean it's it's tough going you have a lot of people who really want this diversity and then you have people who are kind of digging their heels in for um i'm not really sure why (laughs) but it it upsets them so um but again, the fact that George Lucas or um, I'm sorry, it wasn't George Lucas, the director of The Force Awakens, you know, went ahead and tried to change up some of the characters. Um, it, I thought that was a positive development. Of course, then, you know, when I went to go buy um, some Star Wars figures for my son, um, I couldn't get a Ray uh, figurine for him, hmm. um, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. I bought him. Uh, the Millennium Falcon, which is what she's flying throughout the But the you couldn't film. get her. No, she didn't come with it. It came with Chewbacca and it came with Finn. So it did come with the black character. Um, so, you know, there was that. But uh, yeah, the lead, the lead of the film who flew the plane, the pilot yeah, of the plane. The, yeah, the hero. Yeah. Yeah. And my son was upset. He's like, where's Ray? And I was like, I'm sorry, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. We're trying to change the entire world, son. Yeah. Yeah. It it is slow going. And then again, all of the complaints of the lack of um, diversity in the Academy Awards. I mean, I wonder, like you were just saying, it's a the the whole process is is a complicated process, Mm -hmm. but it seems like, you know, like a like a battleship that's going to take forever to turn. I, mean, I you, agree. Because you is, have an academy with ages all the way up to 90, probably. Yes. And this is, I mean, um, I'm glad that there was so much pushback on the Oscars this year. But ultimately, changing the Oscars isn't what's going to change Hollywood. Hollywood has to change first. Hmm. Um, you can't nominate things that don't exist. And Holly, we just need more, we need more diverse movies. And um, it's been proven that when you make those movies, people go to see them. Yeah. They make money. You know, historically, whenever Hollywood makes films, you know, exclusively, just for example, for a black audience, um, it's a huge boon to Hollywood. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, black exploitation in the 1970s is what saved um the major studios from huh. economic collapse. Um, so, I mean, this is a strategy that Hollywood uses, you know, when it's sort of in um, dire straits. So uh, if Hollywood just keeps making movies for these underserved audiences, um, you know, I, I think it will eventually show yeah. itself to be economically sound. 
and underserved too, meaning uh, more female focused yeah. female, which which would also then you know get the big complaint we hear a lot from actors and actresses about there's not strong female roles, right? Better roles for women, and then I guess too women might bring their husbands and boyfriends to these movies as well, and it Absolutely. might change all of us. Yeah, um, there's an old saying that used to really, well, I guess it still structures Hollywood, which is, um, it's called the Peter Pan effect, which is that uh, young young children will go to see anything older children will see, and girls will go to see anything boys will see. So the market that you want is older boys, hmm. and that, that apparently cuts through every demographic. That is not true. Yeah, that doesn't seem all. true. Yeah. Um, but that is that's been the ruling belief. So Hollywood has traditionally been made for white male, um, young male audiences. And, you know, if you look at what's out there, um, that shouldn't be surprising to yeah, you. There it is. Isn't yeah. that that's just a philosophy. And it's we've probably outgrown it. We've changed it. I think we we've, have. we've diversified it. Yes. Thank we're heavens. a different country now than we were in the 50s. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. The last thing we need is more like, I don't know, saved by the bell. Maybe that right. was Although for that was boys a great and girls. Show. Yeah, it was a great show. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I love that. Well, that's this. This is interesting, Amanda. T- as we wrap it up, what uh, what else? What else do we need to know when we when we sit there and to, to, I guess to be a good also connoisseur of um, television, of movies, of film? I guess can I? I can appreciate the new Cinderella and mm-hmm. let go of the old one. Right? This yes. is good. Is there anything I, that would make it easier for me to to appreciate it and just get into it? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say that I went to see The Force Awakens. I am, you know, a child of the late 70s. So I was an original Star Wars fan. I did not like the first kind of three prequels that he made yeah. uh, back in the 90s and 2000s. I was very uh, unhappy with the quality. So I went into The Force Awakens with very low expectations and seeing it with my six-year-old son and kind of the way he reacted to it. And then the way I reacted to it in a very nostalgic way, um, I found it to be a really delightful experience. Was it the best movie I saw all year? Of course it wasn't. Mm. Um, but it was, it was really enjoyable. We had a lovely day at, at the movies, my son. Um, it was great to share that story with him. So yeah, um, I don't think people should, um, should wring their hands in despair. There's hope. <laughs> Over these films, yeah. 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 Well, we appreciate you. Dr. Amanda Klein, again, from um, East uh, Carolina University, an author of the book Cycles, Sequels, Spinoffs, Remakes, and Reboots, Multiplicities in Film and Television. Thank you so much, Amanda, for being here. Thanks for having me. Truly important stuff. Uh, I think, folks, all of us, I mean, creativity's there, but there's also this money factor, and we've got to sort through it. We'll take a break. Uh, Come right back. Continue the discussion right here on The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Yeah, you know, movies. I'm just going to watch what they send out there. Why worry about it? I mean, I'm not like the kind of guy that's going to go watch a trailer for a movie that'll come out in six months mm. and then in two months order my seats. Mm. You know, that and then like in fun. two more months watch the trailer 55 more times. Well, you don't want to miss anything. 
Well, it's the same trailer. There's like little elements, little pieces of the story that are hidden within each frame of that little trailer. is the operative word. I listened to a podcast. Yes. Just the other day, they released the trailer for um, uh, Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's a kind of a prequel yeah. to the first Star Wars movie. Okay. Well, they released that. Well, I listened to this podcast. They, they broke down the trailer for an hour and 15 minutes. Why? It's a minute 30 seconds, is, I think is what the trailer is. It's 90 <sighs> seconds. They talked about it for an hour and 15 minutes, and it was awesome. See, that's where I think we're losing people. Why? Because you took a one-and-a-half-minute trailer. Yes. And then they talked about it for an hour and 15 minutes, mm. and you – Listened. I mowed my lawn. To what they were talking about. Yeah. It was great. Was it? It was great. What I, was en- your, I enjoyed what it. What was your big takeaway? My big takeaway is that this movie's going to be awesome. Holy <laughs> cow. They're just talking about different Awesomeness. aspects. How does how does this work into the main, line, main story? Because it's kind of a just a, a, brief, a brief offshoot from the main Star Wars story that we've all followed. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to figure out where this all fits in. Do these people, uh, do they come up later on in the Star Wars uh, movies that we're, we're just getting now? Or are, is this a one shot? This Everybody that's within this story, you get this one story and then they're gone? But That kind of thing. Do you use them later on? How does that work? It's just speculation. Wouldn't you, rather, wouldn't you rather, I don't know, read a book? I do that too. You can have it all, Matt. <laughs> I feel like I do, it's, and mine just doesn't ever involve. But you, you a can trailer. you can include more and have a richer experience. Hmm. I don't know. You don't think so? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, to each his own, <laughs> right? I mean, sure. If you want to ruin your life that way, how am I ruining my life? You're almost. You're lucky you didn't lose a toe when you're mowing the lawn. Caught up. In the Look, excitement you know, of the trailer. There's a sticker on the lawnmower that says, don't stick your foot under here. Yeah. I when, usually follow that. I've been mowing lawns for a long time. My father. Famous last words right there. My father delegated mowing lawns to me at an early age. Did he? He's like, do this. I don't want to do it anymore. Okay. Okay. Let me just tell you. Can, let me just tell you. There's a story that came out of um, Festus, Missouri. Festus, Missouri? Yeah. Interesting name. Yeah. Festus. And this is this is what happens to people that are too into comic book games, videos, stuff okay. like that. Okay, uh-huh. dolls, dolls. They're a called burglar. action figures. Thank you. Sorry. Well, not yeah. this one. Oh, uh, a burglar at a Missouri comic book shop took the time to steal a Kiss action figure. Figure. Okay. Like the band. Yeah, the band Kiss. Okay. But neglected to double check that he hadn't left his cell phone on the scene. So it's always the details. I know it's always in the details. Jason Hughes and Brandon Williams, they're the owners of All the Rage Comics and Games in Festus, Missouri, said the burglar broke in through the business's back door early in the morning, made off with a laptop, a cash register, thirty-five bucks in cash, and two Kiss action figures hmm. and some Pokemon cards. Oh, Pokemon! However. The thief left behind a pair of clues, a pack of cigarettes, mm. and his cell phone. Whoops. Yeah. See, if if these if these people and if your people, mm. my people, 
You're just lumping me in with the common criminal. The common criminal that that robs a comic book store to get mm. two Kiss action figures. He left probably a lot of good stuff on the shelves, but okay. <laughs> so we got some action figures. When uh, so the police are now investigating, hmm. and you know the cell phone by the way rang. It lit up because it was face up, and when it stopped ringing, it went to the lock screen. So now they're trying to get the FBI to open the phone. Of course, that's how it works. We're mixing stories up here. So um, anyway. The the, the better end of that story would have been if they answered the phone, he's like, "Uh, yeah, I've lost my phone. Have uh, you found it? (laughs) Yeah, you're headed to jail, dude. We know who you are. We're on our way. Yeah, they – you, you leave your cell phone. They can. They have all your contacts. Yeah. They can track the GPS. They can figure these things out once they get through your password if you have one. That's why I have three. You have three passwords. Uh-huh, and I wow. can't remember which one's where. That's why we have passwords. So which you forget. I try three passwords everywhere I go. Crazy, crazy time. So um, I guess in the end what we've learned is you got to be careful if you're obsessed with – Social media, not social media, just uh, what we call this pop culture. Mm. Especially if you're obsessed with the Marvel comics. The I don't DC think this really comics. has anything to do with the story. I think we just had a no. That's a lot. It's very close. To a that. criminal, not necessarily the brightest of the bunch, that uh, made a mistake. He could have robbed a Starbucks. He could have been there. Who knows? He could have. And he, they make more money, I'm sure, than the comic book store. Maybe. And instead, he chose one of your type. Wow. Chose. I feel marginalized. <laughs> to get in there and steal two <laughs> Kiss action figures. What would you have stolen, Ben? At a comic book store? Uh huh. Mm, comic books. Yeah, probably. <laughs> What's your favorite comic book, Ben? Um, Calvin and Hobbes. See, he doesn't have one. Oh boy, really? Yeah. See, Calvin and Hobbes. Make a movie about that. Nah. That's fantastic. Good reading. Bill Watterson actually won't let them yeah. do that. Yeah, he's he's a little little. He's a smart guy. Possessive of his creativity. Well, they'd probably ruin it. That's usually what happens, but see what happens. Yeah. Maybe someday. Hey, by the way, again, we haven't mentioned it nearly enough. Happy Hug a Plumber Day. Hug a Plumber Day. You know what? Plumbers don't get hugged as much. I've almost hugged a plumber. Have you? Yeah. (laughs) When there's like a a major issue, you call someone to come fix an issue. You saved me. Thank you, Larry. You're really close, except it's, you know invading personal space and you really don't know this yeah. person i think i think a better day than hug a plumber mm. is get a plumber some suspenders day <laughs> cinch a plumber's suspenders up right i just think there's certain issues in life that need to be fixed i think and, it would help their image yeah i really do i think it would also increase the number of hugs they get i'm just saying it's very true not to not to diss on plumbers they do a great job. They do a great job. <laughs> they do a fantastic job. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, but when we come back, Kim Giles will be joining us. We will be getting into uh, parenting with love, not control and force. How do you get your your children to kind of move and do what needs to be done without using force and fear and aggression? We're going we're gonna to learn that so we don't use force and fear and aggression with Ben anymore. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Now get to work. We'll take a break. We'll be right back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. We do. We're so reactive that we all of a sudden will make a rule that is is useless. <laughs> we're just going to we're going to just start making rules about whistles for example. Have you heard about this school that has banned playtime whistles as they are too aggressive? You know, for the for decades, the end of a recess has been marked by a sharp whistle blown by whichever, you know, teacher was out on recess duty. And uh, before anyone had ever thought about it, you know, we used to blow whistles and kids would just pay attention to the whistle and it worked, right? But St. Monica's Catholic Primary School in England has done away with whistles. They're worried that the sound of the whistle might be too aggressive. (laughs) Or annoying. I feel aggressed. Yeah. Uh, Children now have to watch out for the teachers putting their hand up. So now... They just are constantly watching their teacher, and when she puts her hand up, that means, you know, time to come in. So what we wanted to do as a show is we wanted to put together some other sounds and and just test them out on the playground with a bunch of kids. So we have a live video feed of a playground with kids. Uh, This is Dilworth Elementary in Salt Lake City, Utah. Look at the kids having so much fun. Let's just test a bunch of different uh, sounds and see if any of these sounds get the kids' attention, like the whistle did, okay? Uh, What's the first sound, Ben? Okay, so an air raid sound. Nope, looks like the kids are still playing. Yeah, no. See, back in the 50s and 60s, that sound right there would have you duck and cover, but not not today. What's another sound here? Mm, Mario Brothers. Nope, they're still playing. Yeah, the kids didn't even hear that one. In my day, that would have shut everyone up, right? Uh, what other sounds we got? Yeah, no, see, that would get me every time. The old yeah, hot pocket I, I sound. I was pretty confident with that one. That was, ah, nothing. Uh, any other sounds? Foghorn, which... Less you know, aggressive, but right. not very but effective. But if you're, if you're a seaman, you know that sound, and you know... You come in. Yeah, time yeah. to watch out for the shore. Any other sounds? That one. Yeah, that one worked. Wow. A little message from their iPhone. Wow. See how they just shut right up. I, I don't even know if they're still out there, but they, they're quiet. They went reverend. I think they're all che- oh, they're actually they're all checking their phones. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So all we got to do, if you really want to control your kids, is just send them a message. So coordinate all of the parents to send messages. Right, that's what they need. It's just a mass email sent to everyone on the playground, and come they'll all come in. right in. You don't even need to raise your hand if you're the the nun or the sister that's running the the primary school there. Don't raise your hand. Don't blow a whistle. Air Raid doesn't work. Mario Brothers Fog, Corn, none of that works. By the way, um, we should have done this before, but if anybody was aggressed by any of those sounds. Oh, that's true. Um, if, they felt, if they felt attacked, if they felt uh, that, it was, um, if, that it was offensive, then, then we should have given you a trigger alert to yes. warn everybody that we were going to be talking about something like a whistle 
that is maybe too aggressive for them. Mm. Okay. Next time, Ben, make sure we always do a little a trigger alert. Okay. <sighs> Good stuff, folks. Hey, we're here to help. We can't do everything, but we can find solutions to the schoolyard whistle. And we now know what it is. It's a very simple You've got mail reply. You know, once you hear that, everybody f- loses focus. And come on in, everybody. Oh, I thought I had a real message. It's almost like the equivalent of tasing somebody, yeah, except no. without the electricity. Right. It's a it's a non electrical tase. Mm-hmm. It's a tase of the mind. Just a stimulating. We'll take a break, folks. Come back next hour. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and uh, let's do it without so much aggression. Lose the whistles. Thank you, Coach. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. There really are a lot of tensions, stresses that you feel, don't you, in your relationship? And and some don't, right? They're just so happy and content not knowing how stressed their family is. But um, I don't know. I think there comes a point for all of us where we need to... to, um, to take our relationship and and like we were just hearing from Sheila Ray Gregoire and become more intentional in it and, and literally say, I'm going to grow this thing. I've had a really weird um, issue going on in my yard where I, I have a love-hate relationship with my yard, my with my weeds, with my beds, my everything. And interestingly, the the yard starts to resemble – my negative belief system. I don't I don't like my yard. I don't like it. And it doesn't look good. So it's now retaliating. Except for here's the deal. This year, my wife somehow has been able to get me more involved in the yard, like the in the weeding, and get me to become more a part of it. And I've noticed that as I've changed my view about it, that it's not just something to hate. It's probably my yard is something to work with, to understand, and in certain places control, um, then it makes my life a little bit easier. So as I get my boys up, uh, or my wife helps us all get up to go out and weed, after doing that for a month, once or twice a week, you start to really make your yard look good. And you, you, you start making a dent in the things that you didn't like. And it's just a shift, sometimes a shift in your paradigm, a shift in your view about what you really, what you can do, what you should do, and what's what's working. And I just look at it like the same is true in our marriages. If at some point, instead of just sitting back and assuming that the yard's going to take us over and eventually destroy us, if I would just shift my view in my marriage, that my marriage isn't here to destroy me. My marriage is here to be an additive part of my life, to teach me certain lessons, to give me some activities to do as well, but to build something with someone else. I can't control it. It's not all up to me. It's just it's just an opportunity to become better, to be better, and to um, to be a little bit different. So Maybe if we see our marriage as, as something that we can work on, something that we can improve, wow, all of a sudden you might grow something you can be proud of. 
heaven forbid, you might even start living some principles that you can share with others. So one of the rules that I would, or uh, principles that I would try to live by, and a thought that I would try to blow up if I could, is that lasting love shouldn't be this difficult. I'm a big believer that if, just like my yard, if I want my yard to look good, it shouldn't just be easy. It's difficult. Anything that's natural, like a relationship, they're difficult. They're, it's hard to keep up. And if you let it go too far and let it grow too, you know, uh, too um, wild, then all of a sudden you'll pay for it. And if you want to have a chance to have a better approach to anything that's living, you got to understand why it is what why it's doing what it's doing. We need to spend more time trying to understand why our spouses are the way they are. Um, I, I always think of the the metaphor of um, there's so much pressure, there's so much intensity that can go on in a marriage from you know the raising of children and the mistakes that can be made and the communication errors that happen and the misunderstanding, but the goodness and the closeness and the richness and the love and the forgiveness, all of that together creates a pretty intense experience. And it's almost like we think that, you know, that pressure is is not good, but really that pressure creates the gems of our life and of our world. Um, diamonds are created under that pressure. Our, our fine gems are created under such pressure. But it seems like many of us aren't trying to create that gem in our marriage by handling the pressure and managing it. It's almost more like we're just looking for gems. We want to go find the perfect marriage partner and marry that person, just like picking up a diamond off the ground and just not even realizing what it took to make the diamond. I think our responsibility here is with each other is to learn how to make beautiful gems and to turn a marriage that's full of pressure and perfect idyllic opportunities to create something beautiful, and then we ought to create those beautiful things. Uh, one of my favorite um, just authors is Neil Maxwell, and he said um, that this world is like a laboratory, and the people in our lives are the clinical material. Our relationships are the clinical material. So one thought I feel that uh, I need to work on, I'm sure you might feel it as well, is that lasting love shouldn't be difficult. It's It shouldn't, I mean, it, it should be difficult. Get used to that idea. It's not here to just be easy for you. It's not here to always be perfect. You need the imperfect times to make the gem. Um, another idea we need to blow up is that I know who my partner really is. And I hate to be, uh, you know, the negative Nelly here, but you have no clue who you're married to. Uh, and by the way, neither do they. They don't even know who they are. Most of us aren't really good at identifying what we are and who we are and why we do what we're doing. Really, we're changing constantly. And every day, every new interaction, every new experience changes me. So you can be as frustrated as you want for why your partner does what they're doing. But before you try to just assume you knew them and now they've changed, why don't you go figure out why they're changing? Go figure out what is the draw for why they're you know, moving away from being as religious as they used to be? Or why are they um, struggling so much, you know, at work and want to change their jobs so quickly? Don't just assume you wanted to be a lawyer since I first met you. Well, okay, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Go figure out why. Don't just argue that they should stay the same because the reality is we're here on earth to progress, aren't we? 
So if I feel a need to change, you, you probably are going to have to help understand who I am and, and not just not only just freak out about it. Um, pretty important thing. I, and why I say that is I thought I knew who I was until we had a my daughter had a grandchild uh, for me. She didn't have it for anyone else but me. Um, but it changed me. Honestly, my life changed the minute I became a grandfather because I thought I loved my kids, which I totally do. But I had a whole different purpose as a grandpa. And it changed everything I thought. My my thinking became much more long-term. I got to be there to raise this girl and to be a part of her life. And I got to create more time in my schedule. All these things needed to change because of this one stage I'm going through. We all are going through these stages. So we're learning one way or another. We're learning. That's the goal of the show is to give you the tools you need when you need them so that you can live healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, any drive through town, it's guaranteed you're going to cross paths with at least, you know, one or two or three payday loan kind of uh, businesses, title loan businesses, establishments that dot the city maps across the country. These uh, companies advertise paycheck advancements that are convenient, quick, without any sort of credit uh, review. These advancements are typically loans in the range of about 100 to $400 range with a repayment agreement due when the borrower has scheduled the, uh, has a scheduled payment such as a paycheck. But what are the risks associated with these um, organizations? What are the financial dangers? You know, nearly 12 million users are, uh, are using these, these locations to uh, just make ends meet in their lives. Joining us now is Dr. Rick Evans, professor of economics at Brigham Young University, who has uh, done some extensive research on this in the past. And he's here to just help us understand friend or foe when it comes to these payday loans. Rick, thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me, Matt. It's a, uh, you know... I think we just automatically think they're out to just get you. They have a really bad rap. They do. And you've you've studied them. And this was a few years ago. But you went, just like in the state of Utah, you, I guess, reached out to all of them trying to do some research. And how, what percentage of them uh, sent back the information you asked for? About 50%. So I think that's a really good response rate for a survey. Yeah. And they gave me some... Sensitive information. They gave me the the average interest rate on every loan that each store put out. They gave me the average amount of the, the loans. They gave me the default rate. Wow. And, and then the total principal lent for those loans. So one thing that I found that I don't think anyone had is that this is a $280 million industry in the state of Utah. And that's really small. That's tiny. Yeah. I mean, when you look at revolving credit and non-revolving credit, that's like $6 billion and $10 billion respectively. So yeah. Th- this is small market. So, so talk to me um, about are they friend or foe? I mean, in your research, what, what do you see? And I guess first teach us what is a payday loan? How does it work? Is it more fee-based? 
I mean, it's really fee-based, but you use that fee to calculate what's the interest rate on this. So if I borrow $100, I'm going to pay a fee of – I'm going to pay that $100 back after two weeks or a month depending on my paycheck and uh, I'll pay a fee of $15 on average. Okay. Now, $15 for $100, that sounds like for a small amount of time and a small loan, not a crazy amount. That adds up to – a 400% interest, right? It's a 15% interest rate on two weeks or a month. You, you spread right. that over a year, that, that adds up to a 400% interest rate. But something they say in this industry is that's like quoting a hotel room price at an annual rate. I mean, yeah. It's a little bit misleading. Right. But on the other hand, it is a fee for a loan that's pretty expensive. Is it... It's and they're usually short-term loans. Do you know what percentage of people actually complete? I mean, pay off their loan with, within those two weeks, or how many are really carrying the? So I, I don't remember this number, but I do remember there there is rollover on these loans. There are limits as to how long that they can roll over the loans. So if I don't pay it back after a month, I think it can be rolled over a certain number of times. Uh, but there are limits on that. And then one thing I also found is in this industry, there's a pretty high default rate. Oh, really? So a lot yeah. of people don't pay them back. So it's actually a very expensive loan for these payday lenders to make. It's a risky loan. Yeah. So one one reason we find that the interest rates are so high is because it's a risky market to be in. It's it's like a junk bond. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's apparently uh, valuable enough to keep building these these check places all over. I mean, they're everywhere. Uh, we even had a guest recently that said they're now moving more to suburbs and places. They used to be kind of inner city things, but now they're moving everywhere as more and more people are struggling, you know, making it paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. And I think the big ones are, are going more to an online presence as well. There are way to, ways to do this online. Make it easy. But really, this is it's also serving a need for a community. I guess one of the things that they're, they're always kind of termed predator uh, they're predators because they seem to be supposedly chasing minorities and lower income people. Is that is that accurate, or are they just serving the need? I mean, that was, need that was one of the main things I was looking at in, in the study that I did. Uh, we looked at what are the things that determine where they locate, and what are the things that determine how high an interest rate they have. And and we looked at location. We did find that they locate in zip codes where they have, on average, more non-married households, uh, more pawn shops. They look, yeah. There's some complementarity there between right. payday lenders and pawn shops. But income was interesting. We found that they locate more toward middle income, like $50,000 a yeah, year. Yeah, interesting. Income. So less on the poorer side of that and also less on the richer side of that. Right in that middle – I guess where we are struggling, the middle, the middle income. Yeah, I think that would be a good way to say it. And, um, but it's the thing, the interesting thing there is it wasn't poor people. And I, I anecdotally, as I would talk to these different uh, payday lenders as I'm gathering this data, anecdotally, that's what they kind of said. And also, they locate in areas that have more restaurants, which suggests that they want to be in areas that are more commercial. Hmm. Uh, with regard to interest rates, I found that they actually – so what are the things that are correlated with higher interest rates across the straight state of Utah? Um, higher interest rates, when there are fewer other lenders in the area, they have higher interest rates. So competition yeah. actually pushes these prices down. Uh, 
not surprisingly, the higher default rates there are, right. the higher interest rates you have. Um, also found that interest rates are higher in areas that have fewer black people. So race is all often. So it's not about the race. I, I there's no evidence for the of interest that. rate. There's no evidence of that for the interest rate. Yeah. That's interesting. So because one of the big things that's been happening is uh, government, state government, city governments are starting to ban locations where these can, where these organizations can go, even trying to do whatever they can to keep them out because they've always been seen as predators. Yeah, a lot of states have interest rate caps that you can't have annual interest rates above like 32 percent or something. And that, that kills payday lenders. Well, yeah, that, that takes – that's – yeah. Then, then that's not even going to be there for the people. So I guess if it's – they are serving a purpose, uh, helping people float their lives financially for one more week or two more weeks. But they are – they're being compensated for it. But you're saying not more than the market would demand. Yeah. In fact, I i mean this is not information that I could publish. And they, uh, But I did for one of the companies see their uh, annual profits over a 10-year period. And, and so I actually can't verify how – how valid these numbers were, but they they were showing me and trying to educate me about the industry. They were saying, "Look, our profits aren't even they're in line with the standard S and P five hundred company." Hmm. And yeah, you think they'd just be raking it in? Yeah, and they're not. I mean, what I did find is it's an expensive loan to make. They don't have the same recourse as banks do. Banks actually have a little collateral on you and me, right? We we have our. Our uh, our paychecks get deposited there, and we get a lot of services from the bank. So if we right. overdraw our account, um, if I if I never put money back in the bank, they they have ways to to get that money back. Um, payday lenders have to go to small claims court. And oh. This is actually one of the arguments against payday lenders that they're predatory. That in small claims court, uh, they end up exacting a bunch of fees out of the borrowers that default. And this is something I, I haven't looked into as, as closely. I know this is one of the arguments against them. But um, if that were the case, if that were the only thing that made them predatory, it seemed like seems like then the answer is to reform the the default process yeah, and how you pay their lenders the same options that banks have. Why don't um why don't banks do payday loans? Oh, that's a really interesting one. They've tried and failed and I think it's because it's a very small niche market that's hard to collect on. It's yeah. a very high risk and it, banks have found it not profitable. And I think this is something I haven't looked at since 2011. But in 2011, banks' main profit centers were on these fees hmm. that you and I get if if we overdraw our accounts. Yeah. Or if, and those fees end up being um, – those little fees end up being really profitable for banks. They had a very hard time trying to offer things similar to payday lenders. Yeah. And uh, that's interesting. Like what's the alternative? Should should government offer lower interest rate loans for poor people if we don't like what payday lenders are doing? Well, that that's the, that's almost seems like what they're trying to do is by legislating the percentages, then you're saying the government's going to tell you how to how to loan your money out. Yeah, so when but you're going to not be profitable, so you'll go out of business. Yeah, when the when the percentages get legislated like that, the industry just goes away. Yeah. And and there's I did look at the literature on this. A lot of authors had done experiments looking at states in which they capped the interest rate and payday lenders went away. And they looked at different measures of 
welfare. And there was kind of mixed reviews. In some states, I think North Carolina, they saw that um, there were some worse outcomes from hmm. uh, individuals in those brackets that typically used payday loans. And in some other studies, they found some better outcomes. So I, I don't know if the evidence yeah. is clear there yet either. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break, come back, continue the discussion with Dr. Richard Evans from uh, Br- Brigham Young University. He's a professor of economics here. And we're walking through payday loans and um, friend or foe, folks. Are they helping? I mean, the, if you need 100 bucks to be able to pay your rent and you're not going to have a check for a couple weeks, it seems like a great answer, right? $15 fee to borrow 100 bucks, But maybe it's more of, uh, of, of just other problems that are going on, other things we need to be looking at, like uh, do we do any of us even have a clue uh, financially how to run our own books? And um, maybe it's we need a little more education to uh, not get caught in the trap of a payday loan. Stick with us, folks. We'll come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to give you the tools, the solutions to live longer and uh, have a healthier, happier life. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show, we're talking about um, payday loans. You know, you see these little paycheck companies all over uh, where you can go run in, borrow a couple hundred bucks, and you'll get your paycheck and pay it off in a couple of weeks. They are definitely filling a need uh, for people that are living paycheck to paycheck, but also just, you know, those that need a little bit more help and um, maybe are struggling sometimes even in seeing the whole picture of their finances. You know how it it is when all of a sudden you get that quarterly bill you weren't expecting or that uh, twice a year bill and all of a sudden you need to come up with a couple hundred bucks. Joining us is Dr. Richard Evans. Richard is a a professor here at Brigham Young University of Economics. He has studied uh, these payday loan uh, programs and is uh, here to teach us what what we really, um, I guess, to, to inform us, I think a lot of us, we, we hear all of the facts that they're, these are predatory. If you keep borrowing and you don't pay back your loans, you're going to have up to a 400% interest rate uh, annually. And um, But Rick's been teaching us something really cool, I think, that it's maybe not about um, – there, there's more to this than just fixing it. The government, let's say, steps in fixes it by saying we're going to cap percentages that they can that they can charge for interest. But you're saying that would inevitably put these businesses out of business because they need it's it's a fee-based business. It's not an they're not doing it by interest rate. They're doing it by fees, right? Yeah, but it, I mean it is an implied interest rate and we've seen this in other states that when a state puts a limit of say 32%, you can't charge more than 32% annual percentage rate on a loan, these companies go out of business. And and the question is is that a good thing or a bad thing? Are if they're if they're predatory, that's a great sure, thing. Sure, get rid of them. Uh it's not clear that they're predatory. And, Pre- and predatory meaning targeting minority communities. Um, in a lot of the research you've read, you're saying th- they don't necessarily show that they're targeting minority communities. They are targeting income brackets. Seems like it. Yeah, but I mean – People that need money. 
they're they're predatory in that are they predatory in that they're targeting middle income uh, areas? I mean, right. I, I don't know. Well, I mean, that's what's funny. They're not targeting poor people. Yeah, they're not. I mean, because again, poor people aren't a good ROI for them. That's middle right. income people are the best return on the investment. That's right. Because I, they'll pay the loans back. I mean, everybody, every business does that. They, they target their um, they target their their key market, whatever that may be. And we see this with payday lenders. I mean, you, you brought up the question: uh, if they go away. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? One thing we have seen, banks have not been able to profitably offer this loan product and they've tried. Uh, It's been suggested by some policymakers that, well, why don't we offer government loans, low interest rate loans? My prediction would be that the government would lose a lot of money on those loans. Well, and I mean, we're not good at loans. Uh, No, we're not. I mean, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, I mean – we struggled. It's caused problems. Now, in the United States, we are professionals at, at loans in the sense that I think we borrow and spend quite a bit, yeah. both, both individually and at the government level. Uh, is that a bad thing? Is it too much? It seems like we maybe do borrow a little too much, yeah. from, in my opinion, and it seems like financial markets say that a little bit. Um, but does the government know better than I do about how, when I should borrow and when I shouldn't? That's, well, that's a key question. That really is. And because the minute the governments are, are getting in and, and mandating you know, interest rates, mandating these things, I mean if the banks aren't going to take it, it just seems like to me banks and financial institutions would be better at managing this than the federal government. The federal government I guess could create a law or a statute of how they need to run I guess. But – I guess what we're also saying is if they put the wrong or a low, too low of an interest rate, then the businesses aren't going to exist anyway. And then what happens? So what happens if all payday loans were gone? You know, if there's a demand for that type of lending, my prediction would be that something else would pop up. I mean, Another the U.S. Version. market is pretty innovative. There's always people looking to start a business, looking to fulfill demand, looking to make some money. And I think that's one of the beautiful things of the U.S. economy. I think we're the best in the world at that kind of innovation. Uh, but we also know that there are predatory businesses, predatory practices. So you want to just kind of make sure people are safe. In cases where there's a market failure, you want the the government to regulate or take care of that. It's not clear that there's a market failure in the payday lending industry. And in particular, Utah was a great laboratory for me because Utah is one of the least regulated states. Hmm. And so we could look at the data in a way that was pretty much unencumbered or undistorted by by – by regulation, and and it, we didn't find a lot of evidence for predatory practices. And so it's funny because we hear the terms predatory practices, yet, like you're saying, we didn't find a lot of evidence for it. Um, and if it was as lucrative as everyone thought it was, um, the banks for sure would be in it. Credit cards would, or uh, um, credit unions would probably be jumping on it. I would even think the big big grocery chains would be doing it. That's Just right. Because people are already there and needing 100 bucks to pay for the groceries. But it's – so there must not – either it's highly regulated everywhere else or there's just not the money in it that everyone would think there is. Yeah, I would suspect it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean we do have examples of things in the United States where the government steps in and, and fixes a problem. I think Social Security is a great example where the government actually saves for my retirement 
And it's essentially yeah. saying you can't save for your retirement well enough. We've got to step in. And there's, there's a, I think the data suggested at least to some degree that that was true, that people are more willing to save tomorrow than today. And so we end mm-hmm. up not having enough savings when we, we get older. And so it, it ends up performing some safety net function due to a behavioral thing that we have. Uh, if that's the case with payday lending, we should be very specific about what are the areas in which we feel like this market is not serving people, is hurting people. And if we identify those kind of things, those are the pieces that need to be regulated. Yeah. I haven't seen good um, – very good evidence of, of that type of analysis. Yeah, maybe it's more symbolic. We're, we're taking these predator loan people and we're going to regulate them. But it just seems like they're still serving a need. What should people do if they're $100, $200 under budget? They don't have the money to pay the rent. I don't know. Like over your lifetime, have you ever borrowed money from your parents? Um, like I, yeah, I just – most scary. people – right? <laughs> most people have – when they've hit a financial snag, have had to borrow money from someone, yeah. uh, their parents or – uh, floated something on their credit card. What do you do when you don't have any of those things around? I mean, there's got to be something. There's, you can yeah. just you can just starve. Well, you can lose your house. Credit you can, card, right? So people, a lot of people, just get the credit card and they just keep giving themselves the loan, and then they go take the loan to the big credit card company, which will charge you twenty percent. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Credit cards function in much the same way as sovereign debt, right? Government debt yeah. for large countries. And it's just if you miss a payment, you get a mark on your credit score. If a country misses a payment, they get dinged in international bond markets. Mm. And there's that's actually a nice market mechanism to incentivize people not to default. Yeah. Like we used to put people in debtor's prison. We don't have to do that anymore because there are other market mechanisms that that punish you and me enough for doing that, that that on on average, most people don't default. Yeah. As an economist, it, do you – we've talked about it earlier. Are we educated enough on this? I mean, we talk STEM. We talk STEM education, all of these different things, all of these rules you have to meet as a school, a criteria to meet. But in reality, we are – I don't think our kids have a clue about finance and interest and – and yet they, they'll come to school their first semester and be picking up credit cards at the store. Yeah, it's uh, – I, I don't think we're ever educated enough. And in this area, it seems like we might be going in the wrong direction. And I think it has to do with how patient we are, how, how willing people are to forego consumption today in order to have more tomorrow, yeah. the savings. Seems like uh, we're more focused on immediacy and uh, less willing to save. Uh, but again, does the government know better than I do when I should be saving and when I should be consuming? It's yeah. That's a hard case That's the to issue, make. huh? Because you don't – we want government out of our business until we're getting shafted by a payday loan company. Yeah. I mean, it's a real predator. I, I'm not a libertarian. I think there's a lot of role for government. There are market failures. There, there are places where mm-hmm. government uh, 
programs and spending actually help us out. I just think it, it ought to be clearly justified in the cases when it does. Well, and there's also times we've wholly relied on them in our markets to protect and they weren't asleep at the wheel. That's right. Ugh. And now payday loans. Okay, give us one more bit of advice. So um, if you were uh, middle income, single mom, three kids, need 300 bucks, parents on ground. Do you do a payday loan? Oh, man, that's a really hard question. I, but, I mean, if, let's that say two weeks, my, if that two were weeks, my only option. Two weeks, we'll pay it off. Yeah, if that were my only option, I borrow $200. I pay $30 at the end. I it, it smoothed out some frictions that I would have missed some payments for my kids' expenses at the school. Um, yeah, I'd take a payday loan. On the other hand, there, there are probably examples of people who uh, are just using these loans habitually, getting in a hole, mm-hmm. getting in a, a, a debt hole. I, that's not unique to the payday lending no, market. Right. No, that happens in credit cards. Exactly. That happens in home mortgages. I mean, so there's nothing there's what, nothing unique there. What wouldn't you – I mean, are there certain things you uh, that makes more sense to put on a payday loan? Um, well, the things rent, that don't make sense is, yeah. is you, you don't want to put it for just kind of discretionary spending. Yeah, to buy that new pair of shoes. Yeah. But again, that goes for credit cards. Yeah. That goes for uh, larger loans, you know, car loans. Uh, you know, you don't want to add too much. I don't want to get this souped up stereo beyond the means that my income can right. support. Just, I guess, you know, save and then buy. <laughs> save right. and buy. And then, but again, there are so many that are just paycheck to paycheck. But um, interesting. Well, we appreciate you. It's great uh, insight, I think, for all of us. Uh, Dr. Rick Evans, again, professor of economics at Brigham Young University. Thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot, Matt. Great stuff. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, helping you uh, see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when you think about it, you uh, – we can call them predators. And you know what? I am sure in the payday loan world, there are some pretty just ugly, you know, companies that will – they'll just take advantage of you. Um, but uh, like Dr. Evans was saying, it, it may not be taking more advantage of you than your credit card company would. Or, you know, your cable company that wants to be paid or your bank, right? So in the end, we can rely, I guess, on the government to come in, step in and save our our day. But folks, at some point, we've got to learn, right? We've got to learn our own limits and start pushing back on our own needs. I get it. There are certain uh, populations that are so paycheck to paycheck they're struggling and, you know, we don't want them to be taken advantage of. But for the rest of us, which are apparently middle America, uh, middle income, who are being targeted by these organizations, they, they're, they're after you because you're going to pay the loan back. And they're charging the rates that the markets will allow. They're charging the rates that are justified and, and warranted. $15 for a $100 loan, that's a pretty good deal. But if that $100 loan is so that you can go 
drive a car that you can't afford, then guess what? Don't blame the payday loan company for your problem. You probably ought not be driving that car. I mean, again, just back to the the issues of how we teach our children um, to say no, it's it's really hard. I, I have a truck that my son does not want to drive. It's just not cool enough. And I'm telling you, the more he tells me about how uncool this beat-up truck of mine is, the more he's going to drive that truck if he wants to drive a car. I told him, anytime he wants, you can go get your own car. But holy cow, as a kid that had to make every payment for my own car from 16, 17 on, um, it was a, it's, it's a great lesson. It's also a great lesson in deciding what you don't need, what you don't want. And there, there's a very real lesson we need to be teaching all of our family, all, our, all of our children. Let's start just saying no. We don't need to we don't need to buy the next thing. We don't need to have the next phone. We don't need to just keep consuming. At some point, let's just find happiness with what we do have, with what we actually are doing um, and what what we possess instead of what we're buying. Maybe the happiness has got to be more in what who I am, who I'm becoming. Do I like myself? Because if I don't like myself having, a new car probably isn't going to make a difference there. I'm going to bet, too, it won't make us happy. So anyway, I uh, I get it. I don't want predators out there. Watch out for the payday loan idea. But, too, um, it seems like we can legislate all we want. But if we put them out of business, what's the next answer? What is going to happen if nobody can get a loan to, you know, to pay their rent for the $300. Personally, if we're going to legislate something, can I just suggest we legislate education? Let's mandate and have our government mandate that our kids all have to go through a training to learn personal finance, interest, balancing a checkbook, you know, making deposits in your bank, savings, 401ks, IRAs, Let's not have that training just be held every time we, you know, have our company sponsor the uh, 401k people to come in and tell us where our money's going. Have, have that taught to our high school kids. You want legislation? Education. Let's start legislating education. Maybe that would help more. Anyway, just my little view, doing what we can to help you live longer with some money in your pocket and uh, live a healthier, happier life right here on The Matt Townsend Show. <laughs> 